You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where better is definitely better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome back to another episode of Post Growth Australia podcast. Michael Bayless is my name, podcast hosting is my game. As many of you already know, I've been enjoying an extended stay in Adelaide since March of this year. What started off as an intended two weeks rest before driving the final leg to WA has somehow ended up the best part of six months. Some of this has to do with COVID border restrictions, as always. (laughs) Some of this has to do with being offered a lovely home set opportunity at the doorstep of the McLaren Vale in the Flurio Peninsula, where I have been enjoying the intimacy of vineyards sandwiched between rolling hills and a dramatic coastline. Not only is it very pretty here, but it has some delicious local produce, not least being the best red wines you will ever have anywhere in the world. So I need to thank Sustainable Population Australia for providing me with with a flexible job where I can work anywhere with internet access, meaning I have, to some degree, the luxury of being able to float about. In a society that fetishises the restrictions and frustrations that derive from being fixed and tied to a nine-to-five job, I almost feel guilty that I've been allowed a final stab at freedom and fine red wine while such things are still possible. It hasn't been a total boozy haze, however. I've met some amazing game changers in South Australia, many of whom have agreed to have the microphone pointed in their general direction. It has also been fantastic, after starting the podcast in lockdown, to be able to actually visit people in their work and homes and do some on-site interviews. Speaking of sustainable population, one of the very first people I caught up with when I arrived in Adelaide was Adrian Sheriff, founder of Animals Anonymous and co-host of the Aussie Wildlife Show. Now back in late 2018, the last time I was in Adelaide I think, I was kindly invited by Adrian to be a guest on the podcast to discuss population and the work of SPA. I had an absolute blast recording the interview at Animals Anonymous HQ, where Adrian cares for a large number of native and not quite native animals who assist Adrian with his mobile wildlife demonstration business. In the fact, the photo of me with a tawny frog mouth that has become my default promo photo was taken by Adrian then on site. So within a week of me returning to Adelaide, I asked Adrian if he would return the favour and within a week I was back at the property mingling with wallabies and hugging large pythons. We also found time to set up a recording and find out from Adrian what he thinks of such things as post-growth and population. Personally, I really appreciate the work that Adrian does in bringing wildlife back into the consciousness of urban people as it really helps to make this diminishing native natural world a real and tangible thing that kids and adults alike can literally touch. This is a really critical reminder in a state such as South Australia, which despite the relatively low population density, also happens to be one of the most, if not the most cleared state in Australia. Although the vineyards are nice, I really feel a tangible sense of 
ease with the fact that the pieces of remnant bushland in the state are so few and far between. Absurdly enough, the new LNP state government of South Australia have decided that this is now their growth state, as if the degree of human modification already inflicted on this beautiful yet dry and fragile landscape is just not quite enough. Just a word of forewarning. <laughs> While site visit recordings are often great for the mental well-being of the hosts and the guests, the recording hardware can sometimes, but not always, get funny with outdoor recordings, which you don't know until after the fact. Such is the case with this interview where the sound keeps ducking in and out with a background buzz. I worked intensively during the editing process to raise a sound where it suddenly goes quiet, which has helped to some extent. Otherwise, apologies in advance for the sound, but hope you still manage to enjoy. Welcome back to PGAP. I think around two years ago, I was sitting here at Animals Anonymous HQ to be interviewed by Adrian Sheriff. He's also a co-host and producer of Aussie Wildlife Show. Two years later, the tables have turned. How are you, Adrian? Yeah, good, mate. Welcome back. Don't be asking the questions. That's my <laughs> job now. Okay. <laughs> um, and vice versa. So, why Animals Anonymous? Is that because you feel that animals are anonymous in terms of having a voice or is it like an AA, like you have too many and you're trying to wean yourself off? <laughs> <more>? <laughs> That's really interesting. I've tried to incorporate that first meeting, but truth be known, when I come up with the concept for the business, a friend of mine who encouraged me to start, he said, call it Animals Anonymous. And then he came up with a logo for me that afternoon. And I was like, okay. And that's how it started. Maybe it should be Anthropocentric Anonymous. Hello, I'm... Michael, I'm anthropocentric. I'm hoping to change. <laughs> Show <laughs> yeah, me would, some animals. That yeah. would be good. And speaking of animals, uh, give us a verbal tour of um, which animals that you have here at the moment. Yeah, so we work with birds, mammals and reptiles and a couple of frogs. We, we're particularly passionate about marsupials. Uh, here in Australia we have 250 marsupials and most people are lucky to name five or ten and that's people that live here. Uh, so we have two species of betongs, which are small rabbit-sized hopping marsupials. We have um, tiger quolls, wombats, quokkas, rock wallabies, paddy melons, squirrel gliders, and some small little mouse-sized marsupials you and I were just looking at now called dunarts. Every time I come here, I become very educated and also come across some old friends like the quokka. Well, yeah, you're from WA and so mm. are they. Everyone knows them because they always look happy. That is that is true. So what got you into this uh, line of work? I, not not everyone owns three acres and looks after reptiles and marsupials. So there's all lots of baby steps, but uh, from an early age, I was always interested in uh, animals and the environment. I used to love bushwalking; that was my thing. I'd always nag mum and dad to take me to a national park so I could go explore. Uh, I did have a couple of pet lizards. And I think having a couple of pet lizards led on to, you know, your auntie buys you a book on reptiles of the world, so you get to see the different species and their different habitats, and it just makes you want to, you know, you look at a map of Australia and go, oh, I've got to explore that and go there. So I was always wanting to look and see uh, 
uh, new things. And I had this concept 15 years ago, uh, and I thought, you know, I, sh I should really do this. Um, I'm called a wildlife demonstrator, by the way. So we take native animals to universities, TAFEs, early learning, you know, high schools, primary schools. We get people up and close with these animals. And my personal intention for doing it, and it's, it becomes bigger than what your intentions are, but my main intention really was to, yeah, to expose people to some animals they don't normally get to see, but it's really to spark an interest in the ecosystems and the environment. Um, we're very habitat focused and it's not always easy to do when you're in a classroom full of people, full of students and you, you know, you've got all these different animals and you're talking about habitat and conservation and remnant bushland, you've got to protect it. Any questions? Yes. Uh, where do I get a pet one of those? And it's kind of like, oh, that's not what I'm on about. But I've softened my stance on that because I realised, well, that's how I started. So Yes, and the other thing that you do is you host, um, co-host Aussie Wildlife Show. Give us a little overview about how long that's been going for and some of the highlights. Oh, our interview was amazing. But I mean, <laughs> we, we, sat, we were sitting out there on the lawn there and this huge front came in and we literally got blown away. So if you do hear the interview I did with Michael on the Aussie Wildlife Show, or Steve and I did with Michael, mm. uh, it ends with us going, OK, guys, we've got to end this now. We're getting blown away. And that's how it pretty much ends. It was yeah, we just spent a good half an hour talking about the apocalypse. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and <laughs> it there it is. It was a very symbolic end. Yeah. On, on cue. Mm. Um, yeah, so like I said, we've been going for about two years. Because I've been working mostly with... with students and things doing the animals anonymous stuff for so long and i hear myself talk for so long and it's you know it's a great way to learn something is to repeat it all the time but i wanted to learn more things so i was looking for a, a podcast that just had you know casual chats that you can absorb while you've got the headphones in and you're, you're working around the property or driving and I, I couldn't find one you know about you know conservation and wildlife and things and i'm sure there's plenty now but at the time i couldn't find anything that that uh, ticked all the boxes for me so I thought maybe we should start one and we were doing some work with Steve Batchel from Deadly 60 and I said to Steve Crawford who I do the podcast with now who's a good friend of mine I said to him about this concept of doing a podcast and I said why don't we, we do one and then we can get Steve on, Steve Batchel on the show and that, that's a great way to kick it off so we did um, we had no idea what it meant to do a podcast we watched a lot of YouTube videos on equipment and um, you know producing and all these things uh, and one baby step at a time I don't think I've had a bad interview I'm really happy to say because every single person that I've had on I've gone back and listened and re-listened to those episodes and I still find things about them that are new to me you know some of the things that stand out are, we've done a lot of traveling with the show so we've been to New South Wales we did a great trip and uh, we got to speak to Tim Faulkner at the Australian Reptile Park and I just love what he was about. You know, a lot of a lot of zoo people, um, they're very zoo orientated, and so they should be. But he he's very conservation orientated. He he knew a lot of the um, reintroduction programs, you know, with, with wildlife, and that really excites me. Uh, he was also very habitat focused, as was the whole zoo. Of course, they do the Devil's Ark, and which has now evolved into Aussie Ark, where they breed a lot of endangered animals. So that was a really great interview. I felt um, like we had a lot in common, um, but I found him very motivating. One question I, I did have, and I remember the first time I met with you, we had a little bit of a, a conversation here about the kind of the 
philosophy of having animals as pets you know that that is your relationship with a, with a lot of the animals that are here and you know there's a there's a counter argument you know every time a human interacts with an animal they do damage or, or whatever and we should just leave the animals alone um so what I, I suppose you've had lots of time to think about this and have lots of arguments with people on this. So, All right. Yeah, it's evolved a lot. I used to be of the mindset that we shouldn't keep native animals as pets um, unless unless we're like an educator or a, you know, a facility that's going to bring awareness to those species. I didn't think that the average punter should have a native animal. But then when you think about what is a native animal, like you know, a bearded dragon, I started off with a pet bearded dragon that led me down this path you know so I had to take a long hard look at myself and go what am I really saying and and I've been really fortunate to see some people that have a pet beton or two and they really care for those animals and I've realized well that's actually a good thing so if it's done well it's a good thing it's not a perfect thing like animals in captivity isn't perfect in a perfect world I wouldn't need to exist a wildlife demonstrator wouldn't need to exist we'd, mm. we'd be able to see these animals uh, all the time. Kids would be exposed to these animals, people would be exposed to these animals all the time. Um, so I've realised that if it's done well, it can the, the positives far outweigh the negatives. So I do have people come up to me and express concerns about animals in captivity and I'll, I will meet them halfway, I'll say, yeah, no, I agree with you there, I agree with you there, I don't try to prove them wrong, but I also say, now look at it from this point of view, um, and that is that through these animals existing, they're ambassadors for the environment, they can engage people um, to maybe make life-changing decisions or at least plant a seed. Um, I've managed to monetize the conservation message that we bring to people because no one's going to pay me to go to schools and talk about habitat, the environment, population. But if I take along a range of animals, the teachers get just as much out of it. You know, <laughs> dog food isn't marketed to dogs. Um, I, I get to um, meet a lot of people and I get to monetize this activity and I can put that money back into what I'm passionate about. I can put my money where my mouth is and I can buy, well, I've bought back one, <laughs> not a rich man, I'm a, I'm a one man show, but we've bought back a piece of remnant bushland. It's three acres in the Matlofty Ranges and I'm very proud of it. I'm very excited uh, to work here and to protect it. It's um, surrounded completely by farmland. Uh, for those that don't know, the Mount Lofty Ranges is one of 15 recognised biodiversity hotspots within Australia. There's a very rich range of life here. Although we do have in South Australia the worst mammal extinction rate on the planet, um, this, this three-acre property has over 110 species of vascular plants. I've kind of completely forgot what your question was. I went on a tangent about uh, the property then. Oh, I think that was the philosophy of... Um, Native animals as pets. Yeah, as pets. Yeah. And it got me thinking, like, I, I think in the late 90s, a bit of a campaign to get people off cats um, and having bilbies as pets. So yeah. I mean, do, do you think that's something that uh, perhaps we should still consider? I, I mean, you know, for a start, there'd be a lot less toxoplasmosis in the world if people yeah, had yeah. bilbies instead of cats. That's true. A lot more wildlife too. That's true. Um, look, I mean, dogs are a fantastic pet. I think dogs are the ideal pet, um, personally. Um, unless you're a reptile person, you can't fold a pet bearded dragon. Um, <laughs> I, I hadn't heard bilbies. I, I, I heard people used to talk about quolls as a replacement for cats. Um, and I always feel like those people make it sound really easy. And I think I don't think anyone that's ever kept a quoll in their house would ever be an advocate for people having quolls as pets. 
in the short term because there's a lot of work to be done. You think about cats, how cats are as pets. You know, you can get good ones, you can get bad ones. They're okay. And how long have cats been domesticated for? I don't know. It'd be thousands of years. Ancient Egyptian times, probably before then too. Quite likely. So thousands um, of years. Thousands yeah. of years. So it's a very, very early days for these species. Um, to have a halfway decent marsupial, you've got to take it from its mum at the point when it's out of the pouch, it's furred, it's still on milk, and then you become mum and you, you then raise that animal from that point so you form that bond. That bond's not guaranteed once it's waned. Once that animal becomes a teenager, you can easily lose those animals. Um, can you house train these animals? I've, I've raised a few quolls, tiger quolls in my house, um, and I managed to house train one. But once they become adults, they're just, I don't know, they're greasy, they climb your curtains, their claws don't retract. You know, at least a cat has the decency to retract its claws to protect them. These guys, their claws are always out. So even when they're tame, they're on your lap and you can bleed. There's a lot to it. Sounds um, like me when I was a teenager. You had me at greasy. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but down the track, if we continue wiping out species and their habitats like we are, captivity might be the only place they exist. Now, there's, there's two types of captive animals. There's the free-range um, op- yeah, open-range areas like AWC have, like your Yukamara Sanctuary and Scotia Sanctuary, where they're, they're feral-proof, taking all the cats and foxes and rabbits, etc., out, and those animals um, can live in there. And then there's smaller places, facilities like us, where we have animals that are amenable to handling. So none of our animals would ever be released into the wild. In fact, our animals would be the complete opposite to that because... We want our animals to be able to be held in a classroom and not freak out. If there's a fire, uh, we want to be able to walk into an enclosure and pick up that animal. If we have to take an animal to the vet, we don't want to have to trap it and have a stress. So all of our animals are really chilled out around people. I've got a question for you. Probably sound like a weird question. Do you know any vegan wildlife rescuers or demonstrators? Oh, I might, but I can't think of any. <laughs> because I've got a theory. Yeah. <laughs> um, it seems like... All the people I've met, like I've no wildlife rescue I know is a vegan, but all the vegans I know rescue like factory farmed animals and have like um, animal sanctuaries for introduced animals to Australia. It's almost like the two camps um, do not meet. Um, yeah, it's a very interesting question. I don't think I know any vegan wildlife demonstrator. That, that said, no, do you know what? A couple of my staff are vegetarian and vegan. Actually, um, so my industry attracts a lot of females, and a lot of them are vegetarian and vegan. They're not specifically wildlife rescuers, though. So I do like your point. That's an interesting point. I have noticed there are a lot of vegans that rescue farm animals. Um, they seem to be very farm orientated. Um, yeah, that's an interesting one. I'll give that some thought. I'll keep an eye out for you. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you do come across any if anomalies, I do come across them, but yeah, because I feel like an anomaly because I, I feel like I care more about the native animals and i do the farm animals it's like whenever i see a cow i just say oh bugger off back to europe yeah, <laughs> yeah. no that's a tricky one isn't it mm. it's interesting i um look I, I have to tread very carefully and i sort of i mean i've got a rescued wombat uh it, it came in the size of a guinea pig it, it went to the head uh wombat care at fauna rescue and she thought this animal has a really good nature for a wombat um, maybe Adrian would like this because he doesn't have one and he can talk about wombats, something they're passionate about and me doing what I do, I can be a voice for that species. And she offered it to me and I said no. Um, <laughs> she talked me into it and said maybe just keep it while it's young, 
Uh, for those that don't know, wombats are terrifying. <laughs> they communicate with their face. They've got extremely powerful bites. Their teeth never stop growing. They charge into you up to 40 k's an hour. Um, so they're a liability, and they dig through just about anything. Did I want a wombat? No. Anyway, I take on this wombat just, just to raise it. It becomes an adult. It's my baby. Um, it's, um, yeah, we're its family. It lives here now, and hence I now have a wombat. Um, that was a rescued animal. So I understand the appeal to rescue an animal, even a native Australian animal. However, wildlife biologists assess population dynamics of species for conservation reasons. Sometimes they suggest that we don't cull any wombats, despite what the farmers or some farmers are saying, we shouldn't cull any. But then some years, the environment, there might have been a bit of a drought, there might not be much food around, the wombats get mange. It's in the best interest of the wombats and their environment that some are taken out. Same with kangaroos. These are animals that don't have any natural predators anymore. So wildlife biologists who love animals are saying that it's in the best interest of this species that we cull them. You know, I understand both sides of it, but it is a bit tricky for me when I see carers that have properties, acre, you know, several acre properties just full of wombats, and wombats are really cute and funny and fun. Again, I have to tread carefully because a lot of my friends are in this world that do this, um, but they can make an awful lot of money, but they're not really helping the environment. And I, am I saying we go in and colour those wombats and plant trees? No. But... I'm just aware of that. Like I'm, I, I call those people animal-centric people. I think a lot of people are anthropocentric, but I try to be ecocentric to to encompass people and animals. If you've got three acres of land that's covered in kangaroos that can never be released, or you've got three acres of land that you've put back trees and shrubs and ground covers, and I think you've got you've created more of a legacy with the latter. So let's. Ah, uh, start getting a little bit more meta here. Um, you've mentioned ecocentrism. What is your, what's your opinion? It's what led us to this point where you know you kind of have to be an animal demonstrator to show kids so they go, oh, look at the habitats um, we're destroying, and you know that we've had what at least a hundred years of environmentalism as we know it, and, and we're still clearing that land in Australia at the rate of knots, you know. Um, what is it that's led us to this point? I have a question I'd be asking you. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I already Whoa, answered yeah. that two years ago. So yeah. That's great. This is, this, is, this is what it feels like to be on this side of the microphone. <laughs> As we um, said, you're yeah. the interviewee. <laughs> Very interesting. You're right, though. I mean, we saw in the 70s, we saw a lot of um, hippies jumping up and protests and the you know, environment and pollution got, a lot of, got thrown around a lot. Then it sort of simmered down for a while and everyone said, back in your box, hippies. And then they cut their hair and went to uni and now they came back with science. Um, and I guess that's that constant struggle, isn't it, is to get politicians to listen to scientists um, because they're all saying the same thing. Um, you know, we're, we're losing species and here's why. And um, I think I feel like, especially because I'm surrounded by people in this world, I feel like everybody knows. Um, but then it's a really hard thing to, to get a cross-section of the community's thoughts when... You're surrounded by people that are like-minded. I live in a little bit of an echo chamber, I suppose. But I think it's the same old reasons. I, particularly, I think population's a huge one, and that's why we had you on the show. It was, um, um, And I can thank David Attenborough for that. Yeah. You know, because he was one of the first environmental educators to come out and talk about that, that terrifying subject of, is there too many people? Is that one of the big problems on the planet today? And 
I, I tend to think it is. Um, and that's why the Aussie Wildlife Show, which has episodes about crocodiles and episodes about tree kangaroos, has had two episodes about population because I think it's absolutely intrinsic uh, in the issue. And it's interesting um, that we can have a debate about culling kangaroos, about culling wombats, of being aware where their numbers exceed the biocapacity um, without having to talk about their per capita consumption. <laughs> you know, but when it comes to humans, it's just like the debate always seems to be whilst no one would deny that 8 billion people is a lot, um, there seems to always be an answer as to why there could be more or, or it's something else. It's due to um, inequality and per capita consumption and choice how many bats and kangaroos choice how many <laughs> they they yeah. have so what what have been some of your kind of frustrations or, or things you found out when you've decided to be vocal about population well go, go, going back to uh talking about culling animals and pros and pros and cons and uh the times where it's it's better for the animals and for the environment um now we're people, not saying we're going to cull, cull any humans of this episode. No, that's no. right. No, well, yeah, we'll come to that. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, but but generally people will, I mean, even, even cat, even when you talk about um, culling cats, there are people that will yell at you and say, humans are the problem. And they're absolutely right. And I love humans. Humans are one of my favourite species. I love humans. I am one, you know. Um, <laughs> some but, of my best friends are humans. Some yeah. of my best friends <laughs> Well, you know, they're, they're right, but... All we can do on that front is bring awareness to that issue. We, we, we can't physically, I mean, unless you're China, you can't physically stop people from reproducing, but we can do something about feral cats. So bringing up another issue doesn't counter the, the feral cat issue or culling native animals for the betterment of those animals. Yeah, again, it's another one of those examples of false dichotomy, isn't it? Um, so I feel a lot of the conversation about um, human population, what to do about it. It's just, well, you're not talking about per capita consumption. It's like, well, yeah, same all the time. Yeah, and on that, you you great, you great, make a great point and people always say, well, what about when we do this style of farming, we can fit another billion people? But, but there's a lot of ifs involved in that. Um, and I feel like everything's got to go pretty perfectly for those ifs to maybe transpire. And it doesn't factor in global pandemics it doesn't factor in cataclysms it doesn't factor in a part of the world struggling so bad that it becomes climate wars um so there's going to be more people that are affected by any kind of negative event which history tells us they happen so shouldn't we have less people and have more kind of resilience as a smaller society as well as being a global community than keep growing because of all these potentialities like we can do things more sustainably and fit you know another three billion people but what's the current um forecasted carrying capacities like over nine billion people they think can live on the earth don't they oh you know the un goes oh that's okay we're going to peak at nine billion and then it goes oh actually 10 billion oh actually 11 billion you know even though the birth rate generally is decreasing per capita. We're still increasing by about 100 million people 
per year. I think 90, over 96% of mammals are humans, their livestock and their pets, and that's terrifying for the 250 species of marsupial I mentioned, particularly the ones that are rare, threatened and endangered. Yeah, and when you just think about how many species of mammals are out there and just several are taking the majority of the biomass. And I know I keep saying this on every episode, but it was just an incredible statistic. Like um, the built world now exceeds the weight of the biomass, so all the man-made structures we've made. Um, <laughs> so you're like me. You think that infinite growth on a finite planet uh, is... Not a good thing. <laughs> well, I, I used to be really frustrated about all of these different issues and, and um, I used to let it get to me. I think as I got older, I realised that that's not helpful. Um, and now I kind of, it's actually, it's actually something Steve said on the podcast. He, uh, you know, we used to talk about the next generation are going to be responsible for this and that. He said, I don't think it's going to be the next generation. I think that I think some of these, if we're going to turn any of this around, this big, massive ship, you know, that amount of energy to turn a ship it's going to take many many generations who knows how many so that really took the pressure off me in a lot of ways and it allowed me to sort of be a bit you know creative and i thought about well, what would be a really great way to live how how could we be living and it won't happen again in our lifetime or our kids lifetimes but i imagine a world where you're not born into debt and what i mean is you you know we're all born into a world now where we have to find a house to live in and find the money to pay the rent on that house and if we're lucky buy a house, um, wouldn't it be great if we could be a little bit hunter-gathery and a little bit having our technologies and space travel and medicine and all, all the things? So we, a little bit of both. So I imagine like um, this, it's an odd concept, please, please poke holes in it, but you, you're born into like a homeland. So you, your family, your friends all live in an area where you can sustain yourselves. Obviously, this requires less people but you can sustain yourself from your property. You don't owe anybody any money. Um, you probably still have to pay a role in some of the uh, municipal parts of the society, and you could still opt to maybe follow a career in aviation, space travel, whatever kinds of careers are available later on, and maybe even be encouraged to. But if you somehow fail in your pursuits in the city or if you um, have some kind of a... I don't know, a breakdown or, or you prevent that breakdown by maybe three months of the year coming back into your homeland and just chilling out. You haven't got that threat of if you don't continue to work, you're going to be on the streets. Um, and I think that's something that's absolutely possible. Will it happen? Probably not. But if will it happen if we don't talk about it? Never. So it's, I think it's fun to put these ideas out there into the world. Fantastic. I always like to ask people like their idea of what an alternative day-to-day -day life is how is my life going to change you know when you hear degrowth it's like do i need to shrink you know um and the vision of the world that you have like the the fact that there is like an urban life and then there's like a i suppose a permi self-sufficient rural life and you can kind of easy way in and out so like it doesn't have to be a dichotomy in one or the other personally I really love that idea. Do you find in your um, role you get to talk about these bigger concepts with people and how do people respond? Um, that's an interesting question. I, I don't really get a huge opportunity to talk about this stuff. Often I'm just um, interpreting the environment and animals and, and things to people and hearing some of their stories and just um, to get... This is some 
some pretty futuristic kind of philosophical stuff that there's very few people that will have these conversations with me. So this is a, a real joy for me to, to be on the show. So thank you for having me on and, and entertaining some of these thoughts because I, I think um, we need to have more of these thoughts and, and get some of the big brains behind it. And we were saying earlier, wouldn't it be fantastic if, a, if somebody like a, a footy player you know, that kicks a lot of goals come out? I can't even name one. I haven't watched football for so long. But anyway... Um, if, if, if a footy player was coming out and saying some of these things, I think then the average punter would, would go, yeah, you know, and that would happen a lot quicker and become yeah. mainstream a lot quicker. I've got a brilliant idea. I think we should pool our money together and pay like someone called Plugger or something <laughs> <laughs> to say, can't grow infinitely in a finite planet, mate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll change the whole country that way, so... Yeah. See, see, this idea, the ideas are brewing. It's the as we quickest speak. way. It's yeah. the quickest way to the heart mm. of the country. Mm. Um, well, there is a. I mean, we've had Carl Chalmers, the Olympic gold medalist swimmer, on the show, and he's he's really into reptiles. He loves keeping his reptiles. He loves coming up here. He's been up here a few times. He's mates with one of the Port Power players, and uh, apparently they're they're environmentalists. Well, they're into they're into wildlife. So um, I'm looking forward to meeting him. So that he could be our guy. If he kicks a few goals this year, maybe we'll get him on board. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I was just wondering about if you have any ideas on our farming systems because at the moment, you know, we've got monocultures of wheat and monocultures of sheep and things like that and they're quite incongruous to the Australian landscape. Uh, and often at the expense of the native wildlife. So have you had any thoughts, and it's okay if you don't, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, of yeah. what could, what we be, what our interaction and what we could be growing could look differently than what it is now, so would it allow a more permeability of um, <laughs> a smaller number of humans and wildlife to coexist? Yeah, no, nothing um, revolutionary, but just probably the same as yourself. I mean, I'm... Here, as we talked about, on three acres of remnant bush, but we're completely surrounded on all sides, barring the road, by pasture with just sheep and introduced European grasses. Um, and anyone that travels through the country sees, you know, acres and acres and acres of cleared land. And especially in low rainfall areas like, you know, South Australia, um, you know, those areas don't just pop back after a bit of rain, you know, that they're, they're denuded from the most palatable species of plant downwards and before you know it, it's gone. And uh, the only things that can take their place are weeds. And even in some places, they struggle. Um, so it is a bit scary. I mean, we had um, uh, Dr. John Reed, the pragmatic ecologist on the show recently, and he wanted to talk about the most destructive species to Australian ecosystems. And I thought, honestly thought he was going to talk about rabbits, because, I mean, everybody talks about cats and foxes, but rabbits denude the habitat and the, and the ceilings, which takes out the ecosystem, which is even worse. But, in fact, he talked about a grass and he talked about, um, oh my god, I can't believe I've forgotten the name of this Not grass. Not cooch grass, is no, it? No, it's. I think it's, it, it used to be in the same genus, um, Penicetum. It's had a name, a genus change. Now I've got to look it up. But this grass takes, and it's a grass you can use to uh, for cows. It's a great grass for the beef industry, the cattle industry, but um, it's taking over ecosystems. And even when there's a fire, it, it prefers it, and it comes back stronger. And it gets so tall, and it burns so hot that it burns trees and trees with um, tree hollows. We know how important tree hollows are. But I think less people would mean, I mean, it's, it, it just 
it's just common sense isn't it, that less people would mean that we need to farm less land. Um, but also sustainable regenerative agriculture, which not a new idea, but you know it's farming the soil, you know, and um, not seeing all the topsoil blown away because they think there's what fifty odd seasons left of topsoil left on the planet. No one's talking about it, and um, you know that's just something that we just kind of live our lives kind of in the in the background. You know, would be the best thing to do uh, with fifty seasons of topsoil left. Adding another three billion people to the planet. Yeah, there, there we go. That yeah. to me, that's just fail safe. I yeah. don't know about you, but I can't see any problems I can't, whatsoever I can't see with a problem. that. When we run out of soil, we just substitute it with labour and capital. Yeah, happy numbers. Yeah, <laughs> the numbers are happy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've started to run out of questions, which I don't normally do. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you'd like to talk about? I think it's really important for families to go and see nature so they can develop a baseline on what's there. So if, uh, you know, if you go camping and bushwalking, you'll see certain things, but then throughout your life and throughout your kids' lives, they may see things change. They may see more feral species. They may see less of certain species. Um, and that's very powerful, you know, and that, that can be a driver, more so than reading something in a book and going, oh, we're losing that, we're losing this. And then it becomes personal. You know, I think even someone that doesn't care about the environment, so they say, will be affected when their local swimming hole disappears or that those trees they took for granted disappears or that view of somehow that, that natural asset disappears. And, and I think we're all very well aware of all the health benefits of nature and as it's being eroded around us, you know, again, we become, we become aware of that. But I don't want to sort of end on a negative thing. I think there's so many positive things happening too. Um, you know, we've got a lot of reintroduction programs with native animals uh, like the western quoll in the Flinders Ranges. Uh, my, my friend uh, David Peacock came up with this idea to put quolls, these uh, carnivorous cat-sized marsupials, which are totally extinct in South Australia. We once had three species, we have zero now. Uh, well, once again, we have them. He's reintroduced them into the Flinders Ranges and um, they're not fenced. They're behind a chemical fence, so there's a baiting program uh, with 1080 baits and because of that that hard work they're back and they're breeding and he came back end of last year from trapping them after they originally put in I think about 30 odd animals and then the following year another 30 odd animals um, nearly 10 years in he caught 92 animals um, so that's really exciting so there's a lot of really positive exciting things happening that we can give more energy to um, the Great Southern Arc is a, is a, um, a project here in South Australia where their fence. I think the fence may actually be up now. Uh, the bottom part of the York Peninsula has been fenced, and uh, they're in the process of removing all the cats and rabbits and foxes and things from that area. And they want to put back quolls and bandicoots and brush-tailed bettongs and red-tailed fascigals. And I think things like that are exciting. You know, those those types of things excite me. If you're interested in protecting biodiversity and a really unique um, ecosystems here in Australia. They're the sorts of projects, I think, to get behind. What a fantastic note to end on. And for anyone who wants to keep up with you or to follow the good work that you do, where can people go and what can they do and how can they say hello to you? Um, if indeed you want them yeah, to say no, hello, yeah, you please, may not please, want to. Yeah, please do. <laughs> please say hello. Uh, we, uh, Aussie Wildlife Show is the podcast and that's on all platforms if you just Google Aussie Wildlife Show, or even if you just Google Wildlife Podcast, we come up as one of the top ones on a search. And um, 
It's over 80 episodes. And Animals Anonymous is my business. If you're in South Australia, uh, we would love to come and show you some animals and talk about things. And you can visit me here at Animals Anonymous headquarters. We do private encounters and you can cuddle a quokka, pat a wombat, pat a rock wallaby, hold a crocodile and um, make me drag you through the bush and hold your head towards the ground and show you orchids and some of the other exquisite little beautiful things that make up this awesome, unique, biodiverse ecosystem. Well, how can you say no to that? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, it's great when two podcast hosts can get together and chat. There usually isn't a lack of things to talk about. <laughs> two people enjoy talking, getting together, but it's um, been great to uh, uh, reverse things and to catch up and to see your stunning vista and your lovely animals again, Adrian, and even nice to see you again. So, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Good to see Thank you again you. too.
Welcome back to PGAP. We have just heard Adrian Sheriff from Animals Anonymous and the Aussie Wildlife Show. If you would like to find out more about Adrian and the fantastic work that he does, I will attach links in the description. Otherwise, I'd like to give a big huzzah to Adrian for all your wise and wonderful insights and for the love and care that you and your volunteers show for the furry, feathered and scaly friends that share your abode. Not only for the animals, but also for the plants. Adrian kindly showed me around his property after the interview, which demonstrates a commitment for restoring the native vegetation, including endemic plants that have become rare and endangered in the area due to, or wouldn't you believe, human interference since colonisation. <laughs> Whenever have you heard something like that before? Anyway, Adrian, thank you for bucking the trend. Did you enjoy the interview? Hated it? Decidedly undecided? Make your sentiments known to the world by rating and reviewing this episode and podcast series on Apple Podcasts or to me personally by writing on the PCAP contact form. Hang about for the next episodes of PGAP where I visit other movers and shakers around Adelaide for their unique perspectives on the ever-pervasive issue of post-growth. Until then, until then.